0: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize
2: the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms
1: your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create.
2: Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com.
0: Hey there, it's Jonathan Strickland, and I'm here to introduce a playlist of 10 episodes of my podcast, Tech Stuff, that are all about entertainment and entertainment-related fields, from video games to television series to films to internet videos from yesteryear. So I hope you guys enjoy these episodes. You can go to the Tech Stuff Podcast page and subscribe to listen to all sorts of episodes about tech from all realms. And hopefully this will provide a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of education, and probably more than a few puns because that's kind of how I roll. Enjoy this playlist. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it's time for another entertainment playlist episode. This one is about the golden age of radio. So we're talking about the early days of radio when... uh, The radio was first coming into being. It's an interesting and dramatic story, and I think it's a pretty entertaining one. Enjoy! Today, Christian and I are going to talk about a, a subject that was suggested by a listener. And first of all, I must apologize to said listener, because despite my heroic efforts of researching where this suggestion came from, couldn't find it. So I'm guessing this was actually an older one. But it said, uh, the forward thinking bad prediction story about Hugo Gernsback got me thinking about how crazy it must have been to have lived through the debut of public radio. All the excitement and so little understanding. Fireside chats, fear mongering about radio death rays, a history episode about the promises and popular notions surrounding radio could be fun. And uh, so we wanted to talk about the dawn of broadcast radio. Now, before we get into that, I should mention... That way back in April 2011, Chris Pallette and I sat down and recorded an episode titled Who Invented the Radio, which was mostly about the inventors who discovered radio waves and found ways to generate radio waves, uh, obviously including the two big names, Tesla and Marconi. Mm. Uh, anyone who knows anything about the patent Wars knows about there was a, a big kerfuffle between the two of those guys. Uh, Little peek behind the curtain. That is the first time, and I think the only time, I have recorded an entire episode and immediately said, We can't use that. Let's do it again. And wow. recorded it all over.
2: Because the ghost of Marconi was haunting you? Uh,
0: there was that. And we had in the old studio, we had a portrait of Nikola Tesla on the wall. Oh, okay. And we felt judged. But ma- mainly, Chris and I both felt that we gave such a disjointed story. That we were jumping around so much that it made no sense, and so we huh. we after talking it through once, we went back, re-recorded. So that first episode that we recorded, it's lost to time. We don't have it anymore. See, I kind of wish I could release. I it.
2: hope we'll be more organized today. But I'll tell you, just from <laughs> r- going through all this research, that this is such a vast amount of information yeah. for uh, this period of time, and I, I feel like, and it's and you can you could get a phd in radio communication and yep. the history of radio and understanding these things and it's yeah we will probably only scratch the surface today i yeah. imagine
0: yeah there there and there's so many crazy dramatic stories of betrayal yeah. of of, uh, con men, of big like business. All early
2: media, it's like this pirate industry of people just messing with each other. Yeah, yeah. It's,
0: it's fascinating. In fact, there, there's probably two or three podcasts worth of information that we could cover, but we're going to try and get this in one if we can. So first thing I got to mention is that radio and broadcast radio are two different things. You know, radio in the sense of what Tesla and Marconi were looking at, they were looking at ways of transmitting short signals across distances without using wires. So that was it. They were looking largely at using Morse code. So they might use a spark gap technology where they would create sparks and send messages that way. But you couldn't really do a sustained message that way without creating a lot of static and noise. And that was a real problem. So we need to look at another person For broadcast radio, that would be a Canadian by the name of Reginald Fessenden, who essentially invented AM radio. That would be uh, uh, the... uh, amplitude-modulated radio.
2: And so from your notes here, you uh, north, your notes, it says he uh, he uh worked with Edison or he, for Edison. Yeah, he worked Nobody for, worked with Edison. Yeah,
0: he actually, <laughs> he actually worked for both Westinghouse and Edison at different oh. points in his career. So yeah, he, just like Tesla, Tesla also worked for both. He, yeah, yeah. Uh, although, you know, again, working for, like, it's like me saying that, you know, I work for the head of our parent company. Technically, I do, but I don't have any contact with them. So uh, he had dropped out of school as a young man. He actually did not complete his schoolwork, but he was keenly interested in electricity and this potential to transmit messages wirelessly. And he was using that spark gap technology, but that was the problem, was that it was creating so much static and noise that it was very difficult to get any intelligible message across.
2: Yeah. So actually, I want to interject here for a second. Sure. Um, in like the model of, of human communication, when scholars are looking at how human beings communicate Mm -hmm. with each other, regardless of media, they actually use, uh, this Fessenden Marconi, uh, model of transmissions Mm -hmm. as like the baseline for it. And it's all about like sending and receiving with feedback and feed forward, mm-hmm. and then there's a signal-to-noise ratio. That's yeah. how it's all understood, whether you, you and I are sitting here talking in the same room, or it's mass media, or it's, uh, like, like in the early days of radio, the, the way they literally thought of it was two ships that were thousands of yards away from one another mm-hmm. trying to contact each other using this old radio technology, and they would have so much static that they would have to constantly give each other feedback and feed forward, to make sure the message was understood.
0: It makes perfect sense. I mean, it, it and especially when you see the brilliance of Fessenden, he thought, well, they, I, can, I can create these sparks of electricity, creating these electromagnetic fields and thus creating radio waves, but it isn't giving me the fidelity I need in order to communicate properly. He then thought, what if I used a continuous wave? So I create a, a sine wave, an oscillating wave. With the same amplitude, same frequency. So it's just steady. Now that's not carrying any information by itself. It's, if you could, if you could hear it, it would just be a steady tone. But it's actually talking about using frequencies above the limit of human hearing. Mm -hmm. So let's say you create this wave and then you were to introduce a second wave. Uh, one that was created by your voice. So you speak into a microphone, it gets converted into electric waves. Right. You add that on top of the uh, the existing wave you've already created, and you allow it to change the amplitude of that wave as the two waves are overlaid on top of one another.
2: Sure. It's genius.
0: It is genius. It's absolutely genius. Uh, so this was am radio this was the idea that what that became am radio cuz it does modulate the amplitude of that wave so the amplitude by the way is the the uh peak to peak uh difference right it's not yeah. it's not how many oscillations this is just the the amplitude of the wave itself how tall the the, the peaks are how low the the troughs are if you were looking at the wave across uh, align the way it's usually and i'm depicted. assuming
2: that this innovation of his significantly reduced the noise and static
0: it did it did it did still have issues in that you could have interference mm-hmm. with other waves that were created at that same frequency it also meant that you could get interference with other electromagnetic phenomena, like yeah. like a lightning strike sure yeah so uh also if you pass below like uh if you go under a bridge you would hear you know the the disruption of the signal. So it it wasn't perfect but it was an incredible step forward. And this was uh a uh, revolutionary. I mean he tested it successfully in 1900. He he did a short distance test between two towers and it worked fine. And then in 1906 he had his infamous Christmas concert for sailors.
2: See, this is – yeah, this is where I think that that boat-to-boat idea comes from, right?
0: Yeah, because it turns out uh, the disaster of the Titanic would end up really making this uh, Mm. uh, clear that there needed to be some radio communication for ships at sea. Yeah. But what he wanted to do was he wanted to send out a message to essentially telegraph operators aboard ships. That was his plan. Yeah. So he preceded the concert with an actual telegraph message That essentially translates into, hey, pay attention.
2: Yeah. And then once he did that, he started... They knew it was coming, though, right? They were... Not most of them. Oh, really?
0: They just knew to pay attention because they got the message. To that particular frequency. Yeah. They they, they were like, well, here's the message. Uh, Whatever's going to happen, we need to really focus. And so what they were expecting to hear were just the the noises they would hear for the dots and dashes of Morse code. Mm -hmm. So then he, he gives a short speech... He plays uh, a violin uh, and plays Oh, Holy Night." Uh, there were supposed to be other people who talked into the microphone too, but most of them chickened out because oh, they, really? they they got like terrible stage fright,
2: right? Because they realized all of a sudden that they were speaking to like hundreds of people rather right. than just yeah,
0: yeah. And so uh, anyway, it ended up being a big hit. Sailors up and down the Atlantic coast were were able to hear him uh-huh. and reported back to it, so it was known to be a success. And that's how a m radio got started,
2: yeah, yeah, I like that that's nice, yeah, so that's a nice start to what ends up being a rather thorny industry yeah so so he he demonstrates
0: this uh capability, and immediately other physicists and engineers start to experiment with it, because some of them had been independently working on this same kind of idea. Fessenden ended up being the first to make it really work in a public demonstration. So you had a lot of other people who who either adopted his ideas or continued to develop their own ideas. And a lot of uh, amateurs were starting to experiment with radio transmissions, including transmitting out to telegraph operators who often were very much entertained by this because it was different from just listening to clicks on the headphones.
2: And this is the part that's the most fascinating about the evolution of radio to me is that even though the technology is is ultimately made for mass communication, people originally started using it as one-to-one communication across right. long distances, it replacing a telegraph. And then uh, these amateur operators, these like DIY... Uh, People in their in their garages just you know, tinkering around with the technology that they could get a hold of, yeah. were able to turn it into this mass communication
0: thing. Yeah, and it's funny because when you look at the early ones, obviously they were using very low wattage transmitters. Yeah. So that meant that they couldn't transmit very far, most of them. I mean, if you were a big name, you might be able to work with someone like General Electric to get a really big transmitter yeah. and be able to, to send a, a signal far away. Because the, the signal's reach is largely dependent upon the power of the transmitter, right? Mm-hmm. The further away you get, the weaker the signal is and the less you'll be likely you are able to pick it up with a receiver. So uh, in the early days, people were happy to experiment with this. And there was really no regulation because there there hadn't been a demonstrable need to regulate yet because no one had the power to interfere that much with anything that was important. Running a business is no cakewalk. 1907, Fessenden would invent a high-frequency electric generator to create radio waves in the 100 kilohertz frequency, which was really important. And in 1908, Dr. Charles Aaron Culver, who was newly hired as a professor of physics at Beloit College, or Beloit, if you prefer... (laughs) and set where, up a, where is Bellwatt <laughs>
2: College? I've never
0: heard of it <laughs> uh, It's, it, it, no it's in a it. town yeah. called Bellwatt, okay. actually. Uh, but set up a radio telegraph assembly, uh, which became the foundation for the college's radio station, though voice and music transmission wouldn't be part of it until the 1920s. But right, this, yeah. this became, like again, it was someone, a physics uh, professor, in this case a physics professor who was already interested in radio and had been working on it independently, Setting up a, a thing that would eventually evolve into an early, early radio station.
2: Yeah, and that's kind of another interesting aspect of this, too, is that these early amateur radio stations weren't just uh, DIY kind of hobbyists yeah. uh, doing it on their own. Like, a lot of it was educational institutions, not just colleges, but also high schools that were just, you know, trying to use it for educational purposes. Yeah. Uh, it, and that'll... It's interesting later on what happens when when amateur radio sort of gets more regulated.
0: It really reminds me of the early days of personal computers and how how it first started off as a hobbyist thing. And then you you had bleeding edge adopters who might not build a computer, but they're curious about how they might use it. And then later you had people who were uh, uh you know more it, it became more and more mainstream as time went on so we've seen other emerging technologies that have followed a similar pathway to radio uh not always with the dramatics i mean there were some definite dramatics in early personal computers too but we got some crazy stories to tell, but first mm-hmm. we have another big name in radio that we have to mention.
2: Yeah. So in 1910, this guy Lee De Forest, uh, really he broadcasted like the the first sort of broad meant for mass mm-hmm. communication radio broadcast, uh, uh, specifically of a guy named Enrico Caruso yes. singing. I believe it was opera singing. Yep. From what I understood, yeah, tenor. Um, and uh, he he ushered in this area era of radio communications. And unfortunately, though, e- even though he was broadcasting probably on Fessenden's new system, mm-hmm. for the most part, it was static and radio interference. So the audience barely heard anything. But, you know, for a decade afterwards, radio fans were both using uh, these amateur radio units to broadcast and receive. Yeah. Yeah. It so wasn't just them receiving.
0: Yeah. It wasn't like they were a passive audience, they were creating as well. And again,. Yeah. <clears throat> depending upon the power of their radio transmitters, it may be that they were only transmitting to people in their general neighborhood or even small town. Right, yeah. Uh, but you wouldn't be able to necessarily pick up that signal for much further. It also depends on the quality of the receiver as well. Like you could build a very simple, a radio receiver that doesn't even require a battery mm-hmm. and has a crystal, a very long antenna and some headphones. And, uh, you can pick up radio signals if you're close enough to a transmitter. Uh, and in fact, that's a fun project to do. You can look up how to do that online. So also in 1910, the same time Lee DeForest was was experimenting with this, you had a guy named Charles David Harold who opened a school that he called the Harold College of Engineering and Wireless. And he was experimenting with wireless voice transmissions as early as 1909 and providing a thrill to telegraph operators who suddenly were able to hear voices over their telegraph lines. Now, this is out in California. Mm. So he's surprising people out there who normally they they weren't expecting it at all, but they loved it. Right. Because you would imagine this job is a little. It's probably very tedious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so he actually started setting up a regular broadcast time, like the first radio programming in a way. Mm-hmm. And by 1910, he had created this uh, this program that would include reading out news to telegraph operators and his wife Sybil got involved, and she started playing records. That the description I said was the kind of records young people like
2: to listen to <laughs> back in nineteen ten. Nineteen ten, those young, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: So playing records, so playing music for these telegraph operators, and holding the first radio contests. Right. She yeah. and here's how the radio contest worked back then. She would instruct people listening to come by their house sign a guest book with their name and where they were from, and then they might win a little prize. It wasn't,
2: it wasn't caller number seven? Nope, wasn't <laughs> caller number seven. Uh, and here's the coolest part,
0: I think. This little amateur station eventually, over time, in 1921, would become KQW. And then in 1949, it would evolve into KCBS, as yeah. in the CBS. Yeah.
2: yeah, I thought that was really interesting, especially, like, we'll talk later about... CBS is sort of importance in the big game of radio and yeah, its development. Yeah,
0: so 1910 is also when the U.S. passed the Wireless Ship Act, which required all ships of the U.S. traveling more than 200 miles off the coast and carrying more than 50 passengers to have a wireless radio uh, equipment on board with a with a, 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 an operator, uh, and the transmission range had to be at least 100 miles. And that meant that it created a lot more radio transmissions broadcast without any regulation. Mm-hmm. This is where the United States government starts to say this is going to become a problem because now we, we already have a lot of radio traffic going on just through amateurs as well as ship to land, land to ship communication. Uh It's starting to get a little crowded and we're starting to get interference. We need to figure out how to handle this. So in 1912, they passed the Radio Act of 1912, which is good because if they had passed the Radio Act of 1912 in like 1911, everyone would have been confused. Uh And it marked the first time the U.S. government required radio stations to be licensed. So the licensing was really just to create order and chaos. Uh And it was really kind of like, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we're keeping certain frequencies free, so that we can have these these very important transmissions go uninterrupted. Because AM uh, transmissions, if you transmit two things on the same frequency, you get lots of interference, and which is different a, from FM.
2: There was a, a military component to this as well. Oh yeah, because World War One was on the horizon, was happening, yep. and and uh, the the government banned amateur radio. Yeah, broadcasting during the war for you know the reason of that they were trying to transmit signals to one another of important nature. If somebody was talking in their garage about um, uh, you know their favorite records right. or something, or the maybe young they people were listen whole, whole, to. Yeah. yeah, the ones that the young people listen yeah. to, they would overlap and they wouldn't get these important messages. So they shut it all down,
0: and also just uh, radio detection too. The the remote possibility that they might detect radio transmissions from mm. either allies or enemies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would mean
2: that... This is before they had an Enigma machine. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, this is this is before uh, the whole Bletchley Park Enigma thing, which is... A fa- I've talked about that in the previous episode of Tech Stuff, but a mm-hmm. fascinating story. So 1914, Edwin Armstrong, who's going to be important throughout this conversation, and his story is amazing and tragic. Uh, he patents a radio receiver circuit... That increases the selectivity, which allows you to tune into specific frequencies, and the sensitivity of radio receivers. That means it was able to pick up weaker radio signals than previous receivers. Right. So selectivity, obviously very important. You want to be able to say, I'm looking at this particular band of frequencies, and I don't want anything outside of that. Um, And we would see that get better and better. In 1918, he would invent the Super Heterodyne Radio Receiver, or SuperHET. So this principle is actually really fascinating. And I got to admit to you, Christian, I had to really sit down and read this a few times to kind of get what was going on. Yeah, because I mean, this is radio, uh, electromagnetic and radio broadcast. I I have a basic understanding of it, but it does go well beyond what I studied in school. And it took a while,
2: but now I think I've got it. Well, explain it to me because, yeah, I'm more of the on the side of the like, Cultural examination of radio. Okay. W- whereas, like the technology of it escapes me sometimes. So yeah, hit me. All right. And so the audience.
0: <laughs> let's say, let's say I want to transmit uh, a radio signal at a high frequency, so it's not going to interfere with anything else. Okay. But that processing high frequencies is a little tricky. So you might have a receiver that can process frequencies up to. I'm just going to take an arbitrary number, five hundred kilohertz. Okay but I want to transmit at 1,500 kilohertz. Mm. If I were to introduce that frequency to an oscillator tuned to a different frequency, suddenly I would be able to receive that uh, not just at the original frequency I transmit at, but the difference between that and the oscillating one. So another easy example. Let's say they have an oscillating frequency at a 1,000 kilohertz. Yeah. Okay. That would mean that if you used a receiver tuned to 500 kilohertz, 1500 kilohertz or 2500 kilohertz, you would pick up that signal and could process it.
2: Okay, so and I'm imagining that this is a process that's still used today.
0: Yeah, this is the principle of transmitting and and receiving with a radio so that your radio doesn't have to have as wide a spectrum. It's called an intermittent frequency. Okay. And it took me a long time to figure out what was going on. It was the oscillator that was throwing me off, and then I realized, oh, the oscillator's tuned to a different frequency, and that's what gives you the broader range that mm-hmm. you can pick up. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fascinating, and Again, Armstrong was absolutely brilliant coming up with this. Uh and then we move up to the 1920s.
2: Yeah, in the 20s is when this educational stuff that I was talking about earlier really hits a boom. There was like more than 200 educational organizations across the United States of America that uh were requesting broadcasting licenses so that they could transmit and whether they were uh using it as a an opportunity for their students to learn about the technology mm-hmm. or to broadcast educational information. It didn't really matter. The unfortunate thing is that 13 years later, by 1933, 75% or more of these educational institutions had folded. And, and basically, it was because of, and this is going to be a huge theme of this episode, because of uh, ad-based programming and stronger stations, commercial stations mm-hmm. that were able to overlap their signal.
0: Yeah, you essentially had... Not just the fact that the companies had more technological oomph behind them, but that the government was favoring those over the educational ones. Uh, When we get into uh, a little bit more about the politics, you're going to hear that repeated a few times. And it's it's a little upsetting, honestly. And
2: and also, I'd like to say, like, it's interesting because despite whatever my political beliefs are, Reading uh, one of the articles that we used as a as research for mm-hmm. this was written in 1935 mm-hmm. from the perspective of somebody at Harvard University looking back at the Federal Radio, Radio Com- uh, Commission yeah. before it turned into the FCC that we have now. Yep. And kind of just doing a broad review of the last like 10 years of this. And it's very, <laughs> very similar and reminiscent of arguments that we've seen with media throughout the last hundred years mm-hmm. and that we're seeing right now. In arguments about net neutrality, yeah,
0: it's really similar to net neutrality. The idea being that everyone should be free to use the internet to send and receive whatever information they want. In radio, we saw the same argument, except in that case, radio, it was it ended up being that those folks were kind of pushed away, yeah, and that the 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 corporations, the companies that had the money, were the ones that had the voice.
2: Yeah, and, and so, like, you know, as we were talking earlier, there's these amateur radio stations, right? And they here's the kind of content you might find on amateur radio stations. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody's giving a sermon, they're, or they're, they're they're just reading out of their Bible, or they're uh, talking about sports out of today's newspaper, uh, updating their neighborhood on what happened in sports around the country that day. Mm. Uh, maybe they're reading a poem. Maybe they're giving a speech about something political at the time, perhaps. Yep. The usage of radio. Uh, or... Like we were talking earlier, uh, just playing records. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, there was no, you know, uh, licensing or copyright in effect for for how <laughs> music was broadcasted. So they could just throw any record on and kind of entertain the neighborhood.
0: Right. In a way, you could think of it as like the predecessor of blogs. Yeah. You know, it really in a in a real way it was, and uh, this was amazing. This was an ability for someone to have a platform, to have their voice heard. Some people made very good use of that. Some people may, you may think, made frivolous use of it, just like what we yeah, see on the internet.
2: Sure. Yeah, exactly. And and that's just like blogging, except for, for people like us, I suppose, who, who do get paid to do it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, these these amateur radioists that they weren't getting paid for this. They had yeah. day jobs. In fact, like one of the stories I read was about how um, there was this guy who ran a gas station, but he also had a radio station running out of his gas station. And so he'd be on air and then he'd say, hold on a minute, I have to go uh, sell some gas and yeah. he'd go, he'd disappear for five minutes and then he'd come back and just pick up again. Yeah. Uh, and that was just how it is. They didn't really worry about dead air or anything like That's that. it's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, there's also this other like broader, more important thing, which I think is why, uh, the government started to become more involved in it, which is that radio allowed the listeners to sample other cultures from far away states mm-hmm. that and, and, and learn more about what this kind of idea of America as a nation meant. You know, even though they may have never visited Nebraska, they would be hearing what these amateur radioists in Nebraska were talking about. They were th- giving them sort of a, a peek into what a, what the culture in those towns were like.
0: It's really cool.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, moving over to, to 1920, that's when we get the first commercial radio station launching. That's KDKA. Now, amateur radio stations, like Christian was saying, had already been around. And a guy named Henry P. Davis was inspired by an amateur named Frank Conrad. And saw the potential to actually make some money off this whole radio thing and not just, not just broadcast out for free, but to actually make it a, a commercial enterprise. So the radio station went live on November 2nd, 1920. Uh, Henry P. Davis himself read out the results of the presidential elections on the air and he would become heavily involved in broadcast radio. In fact, becoming the first chairman of the national broadcasting company, also known as NBC. NBC. So in 19.
2: Yeah, exactly. Peacock. Peacock.
0: Yeah. Then the opening of 30 Rock. In 1926, (laughs) KDKA was owned and operated by Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company. And you might not be surprised to hear that Westinghouse used the radio station as a means of convincing people to go out and buy radios, because up to this point. Again, it was very much an amateur thing. People who were interested in the science would go out and get the equipment yeah, or build the equipment from from own. whatever they could. Right. And that's how they participated. But now we're talking about actually making commercial radio sets for people to go out and
1: buy.
2: And this is also the beginning of things starting to get a little dodgy on the corporate side of things. Yeah. Because in 1921, uh, previously the patents for radios were all over the place, mm-hmm. but- What happened was the big companies, GE, AT&T, weird, they're such familiar names nowadays. GE, AT&T, International Radio and Telegraph, and Westinghouse all got together and said, let's pull together our patents. And they created RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, for the express purpose of allowing them to build and sell radio equipment like transmitters and receivers that were designed not for broadcast. Broadcast, but for for telegraphing, yeah. But also to keep these amateur radioists uh, out of business, basically, yeah. so that they couldn't just go and buy an out of the box kit anymore. Right, they would have to they would have to really build it themselves.
0: Yeah, RCA flexed its muscles in ways that I think just about anyone would describe as odious. <laughs> in uh, in a lot of the stories we're going to cover.
2: Yeah. 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 Um, and, and what's kind of interesting is just that, you know, there's there's this other article that I read for this that was called uh, The Design of Symbiosis that was all about, you know, the, the, the longevity of radio and, and these corporations interacting. And th- there's a quote from it that I want to read, which is I- about this specific thing. It says, it was no accident that the General Electric Corporation, GE, after acquiring rights to the Marconi wireless patents in the United States, spearheaded the formation of the RCA – which in turn launched the National Broadcasting Corporation (NBC), one of GE's many subsidiaries. It still is, I believe, right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, then you got Universal,
2: <laughs> yeah. Right, it. Well, yeah. It gets even larger than that, yeah. and a leading content company. So it's like one thing led to another, from one corporation mm-hmm. to the next, as they yeah. kind of built out their their subsidiaries and spread their uh, spread out, kind of like an umbrella. Mm-hmm. And it, and it. Don't get me wrong, this wasn't all negative. They're, right, there were very. Uh,
0: That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Temp to hire part time or full time. You name the position
0: I love that you have this bit about AT&T and their, yeah. and their business strategy. Yeah, this
2: is one of the, so apparently they like repeatedly were trying to charge people for uh, commercial broadcasting over their sets. And they wanted to charge tolls in the same way that they were charging people for phone calls, which I think is amazing when you when you, you think about it. You know, there's just these, these negotiations between the public and the large corporations when these new media... Uh, hit the scene, yeah, and we're, and we're we're experiencing it right now. We'll probably always be experiencing it. Yeah, I
0: imagine so. And it's interesting too. You you make a delineation in our notes about how how the radio system is treated in America versus in other nations.
2: Right? Yeah. So uh, the thing that's unique about the American radio system. This isn't to say that that. No other countries did this, but the American radio system specifically evolved as a unique combination between private enterprises like these ones that we were just talking about and government regulation. Whereas in other countries, for the most part, it went for public ownership. So places like Iceland, the United Kingdom, obviously with the BBC, Italy, Turkey, and the USSR, it was all public. Um, and so the, the problem that radio had that was unique in america was that all of these consumers could receive any signal at equal equality mm-hmm. very much like again blogging right sure in theory and that any broadcaster however whether it's nbc or a guy operating out of his garage would be able to overwhelm multiple frequencies and yep. and overwrite what was being played by somebody else's uh broadcast.
0: Yeah, at the very least, you could interfere with the the signal. Um, We'll talk about FM in a little bit. The interesting difference, one of the many interesting differences between AM and FM is that if you have two AM broadcasts that are coming out at the same signal, they interfere with one another, the same frequency, I should say. They interfere with one another. FM, if you have two of the same frequency, it's whichever frequency is the most powerful is the one you will receive. Mm -hmm. So you could have... A little station that is broadcasting in a very small amount of power that uh, if you are close to it, you would be able to pick it up on an FM band that would normally be for a radio station that might be miles away. Yeah. That could be a giant corporations one. So yeah. there was a lot of back and forth with this, too, which is kind of today we think
2: of this. You and I were talking about this the other day when we proposed this idea. We think of it as pirate radio. Yeah. Right. And I think of, I always think of uh, pump, up the volume. pump up the volume. Yeah. And, and Christian Slater driving around his neighborhood with his uh, his pirate radio station in the back of his car.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's also similar. I did a story with Chuck Bryant about uh, it, was, it was television, not radio, but the same same principle. Uh, the Max Headroom incident, where in Chicago, that was also the same principle as FM radio, in that if you were able to send a signal along the same frequency but at a higher power rate, then you could overpower that, and people would receive your signal, not someone else's. Yeah. Uh, but anyway.
2: And so as these these conflicts are going on, these like weird Venn diagrams of stations, uh, Mm. playing up against one another. The the government starts to become interested as we as we've talked about, and, yeah. and especially because of military reasons. So the navy says, you know what? We should really take control of this as a means of national defense. And the way that they thought it should be run was basically like the post office—that the uh, you know the the federal government should uh, own and control what is broadcast on mm-hmm. radio signals. And obviously, that that didn't end up happening. But then you get this huge boom because of the amateur radio movement. From 1922 to 1923, the number of radio sets in America increased from 60,000 to 1.5 million. That's a
0: huge uh, uh, adoption rate.
2: Yeah, Massive. And uh, in 1922, there were 28 stations in operation, but I think it like exploded to hundreds very quickly. Um, And then enter the scene. Uh, a little guy named Herbert Hoover, (laughs) who was at the time the secretary of commerce.
0: Right. And the the Department of Commerce oversaw radio at this time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And he was really the initiator of that idea. He was the one who said, uh, you know, uh, he really wanted the Department of Commerce to control it, first of all. But he also said, and this is another quote, he said, at first, the idea of making money off radio seemed profane. It is inconceivable that we should allow so great a possibility for service, for news, for entertainment and for vital commercial purposes to be drowned in advertising chatter. <laughs> this is Herbert Hoover, mm-hmm. who subsequently ends up using the government to support the businesses uh, in terms of uh, uh, businesses over amateur radio stations yeah. Uh, yeah. in terms of their licensing. Uh, and his other analogy for radio was that he thought of it as transportation rather than the, the post office analogy that the Navy was using. Mm. He thought it was like we should think of them as like waterways and that uh, the public should be, be able to ride these waterways, but that the government would regulate how they did so.
0: I like this this message here, too, of the one of the world's first radio ads aired on August 29th, 1922. Uh, for a housing development in Queens. Yeah.
2: Yeah. This is the, uh, they were basically like um, uh, advocating what we would now call gentrification. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, get, a, this is a quote from that ad get away from the solid masses of brick where children grow up starved for a run over a patch of grass. <laughs> the,
0: my child's never seen what a tree looks <laughs> yeah, like. Exactly.
2: Moved to that, Queens. This is the first thing that we, we sold on radio. That's hilarious. Yep. Yeah. But so Hoover goes on. And in 1922, he calls together the first American radio conference, which is he brings together representatives from. And I put this in quotes, radio industry, because it really wasn't an industry. Yet. Yeah, you know, it was yeah. just kind of and, and this included uh, not only, you know, the, the businesses that had interests in mind, but also the amateur radio operators. Mm-hmm. And no action was taken. Uh, There were calls for legislation. They introduced a bill to Congress. Congress was like, no, we don't want to have anything to do with this. And there's political reasons behind that that I'll get into later. Um, Well, then by 1924, we've got 1,400 radio stations, not just the, what did I say, 27 or 28 earlier? Yeah. Yeah, And so you've got these big commercial broadcasters that are forming networks like NBC and CBS. Uh, Both of them, they formed in 1926 and 1927, respectively. Uh, and it's very similar today to the same that NBC and CBS that we understand as being television now. Right now,
0: now I've got the beginning of one of the weirdest stories I've ever heard.
2: This guy's my favorite. Period. I think, I think you should do a whole episode about this guy. I
0: could easily do a whole episode about this guy, and and he's going to pepper through. <laughs> Parts of the rest of this ep- episode. So 1923 is what we're talking about here. We're going back just a little bit to, to set the stage. That's when Dr., and I use it in quotes, John R. Brinkley starts up a radio station called KFKB in Kansas. So let me tell you about Dr. Brinkley. First of all, he wasn't a real doctor.
2: He's like the original snake oil salesman. He, uh,
0: he at least perfected <laughs> it to an art form, right? He went to medical school, but he never graduated, but... He bought a diploma from a diploma mill for $500, not an insignificant amount yeah, of money. That's not bad. Uh, and it gave him the right to practice medicine in some states, including Kansas. A uh, purchased diploma, mm. not, not an actual, like, proof that he had the training that would allow him to do this. So anyway, he starts practicing medicine. Uh, he had previously been involved in some scams and cons, including things like selling tinted water as if it were an actual medicinal cure. Yeah. Yeah. And injecting it into people.
2: Yep, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But these are I want to see a movie about this guy's life. Yeah. I want to see. An, I want to uh, see a movie.
0: Guy. I want to see a movie about this guy. I want to see him cast. I want I want. Simon Pegg to play him.
2: <laughs> He's just like de- deviously injecting things into people and cutting open their necks.
0: I think, I think either Simon Pegg or Neil Patrick Harris would be oh, brilliant.
2: Yeah, he would be good. Oh, it's like evil Doogie Hauser. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So
0: he had, he had been hired as a house doctor for a meat packing company and he observed the rigorous mating habits of goats.
2: Uh, Yeah. So let's slow down for a second. here, people. This means that he watched goats have sex for a long time. Right.
0: And and enthusiastically, the Mm. goats, at least I don't know about him, but the goats were certainly enthusiastic. Yeah. So he was talking to a male patient once about uh, the fact that the male patient was having problems uh, in the bedroom. He was having a failing libido, erectile Mm -hmm. dysfunction, perhaps the the actual uh, nature of the problem was not not explained in all the sources I looked at, but at yeah, any rate, right. had something to do with uh, failing libido or, or um, you know, virility, and so supposedly what Dr. Brinkley did was jokingly suggest that perhaps they should transplant plant some goat "quote unquote" glands, yeah. as in gonads, yeah, into the male patient, and he said,
2: "Let's, let's do it. Let's fire her up." It's <laughs> like the original body modification. <laughs> give me some. Give me some <laughs> of them goat glands. So he
0: does. He actually did start performing this and then he yeah. started to, uh, suggest, like he, he began to essentially advertise saying, this is a way to restore virility for men. Uh, let me do this, this, you know, medical procedure for a, a not insignificant amount of money. Yeah. So flash forward to 1923 when he gets the radio station and he starts to fill his broadcast time with music and medical lectures and he would end up uh, advocating for this kind of treatment and other treatments that were equally bogus in a way advertising too yeah and he himself. was he was essentially throwing business to surgeons and to pharmacists and getting kickbacks every single time and making a mint off it so he's in full operation and will end up believe it or not defining in part why radio is regulated the way it is. But we'll get to yeah. that in a little yeah,
2: bit. Yeah, yeah, no, he's important to the history of it. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, Hoover's continuing to negotiate with stations and, and the government on how it should be regulated. And, you know, basically as the Secretary of Commerce, his work is to let the stations work out amongst themselves which frequency is going to be used <laughs> and when and how they overlap, he wasn't really, you know, handing it out. He, w- he would occasionally make decisions, and what happened was in 1926, the federal court was like, whoa, 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 you don't have this power, and specifically the Attorney General of the United States, who, you know, was from the same administration that the Secretary of Commerce was, decided that Hoover didn't have this power, he could not grant permits at request, and that all of a sudden these airwaves turn into even more of this, like, wild, wild west of broadcasting than they already were. Uh, and so, obviously, more regulation is even, is necessary. And Coolidge is the president at the time. He favors the control by the Department of Commerce, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, because it's under his branch. And he opposes any kind of commission being formed. The Senate, however didn't like the idea of one man being in control. And this is where the political angle comes in because they knew that Herbert Hoover had his eye on the presidency Mm -hmm. and they didn't want to give him any political prestige for taking care of the radio problem.
0: Interesting. And also this will probably seem familiar to people following the net neutrality arguments where one of the big problems was the FCC had brought a case against Comcast for blocking BitTorrent traffic Mm -hmm. and then the response was you don't have authority to tell Comcast what it can and can't do because internet transmissions were a title one classification, not title two. Uh, And if you want to know more about that, you can listen to the title two podcast I did and common carrier podcast. I did from a while back to, to learn more about it. But just suffice it to say that this is something that we've seen before and we'll likely see again.
2: Yeah. I, I just, I think it's fascinating that like, the future of this major media uh, was decided by people who wanted to screw over a political candidate potentially running for
0: president. Yeah, yeah. and sometimes just people who were wanted to screw over inventors. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's crazy. We'll talk more about those, too. In 1927, Congress creates the Federal Radio Commission. And passes the Radio Act of 1927. Now, before that time, it was all the Department of Commerce, like Christian was saying. So the commission's job was to get radio into shape. And they wanted to have a little more power than Department of Commerce, which could grant broadcast licenses, but couldn't deny a broadcast license. So if you requested it, if you did all the things you were supposed to do, you would get one. You couldn't be told no. So... The Federal Radio Commission was supposed to be able to say no if it was warranted. Um, the question of how they determined how it was warranted was something of a problem. And uh, the act also laid out rules for content. Programming could not have obscene, indecent, or profane language. And the commission could and did use content as a factor when deciding whether or not to renew a broadcast license. So if you were broadcasting and not paying a whole lot of attention to those content rules, mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily have your license revoked. But when you went back to get your license renewed, you might be denied.
2: Right. And this makes sense in light of other arguments that were going on with media over the you know the 20 years probably surrounding this. Uh, yeah. Both with uh, cinema and I, I would assume newspapers and comic books as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, all looking at, at the government uh government trying to deem what was profane or wasn't, but also trying to leave it in the public's hands to decide.
0: Yeah, there was also a real worry about how far can you rule on these things before it becomes censorship. So, mm-hmm. that I mean, that's a real mm-hmm. worry.
2: Right, because they didn't want to be accused <laughs> right. of taking away somebody's right to... Free speech, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, and so uh, the the FRC, Federal Radio Commission... It was really just like this compromise, mm-hmm. this political compromise. And so the idea was like really like they just assumed they being Congress that it was going to go away after a year as part of a political deal basically to keep Hoover out of office. And especially because of the commercial radio interests, these guys who were lobbying their politicians, uh, they wanted the regulation to go back to the secretary of commerce. They just <laughs> didn't want it to be Hoover. Yeah. Uh, and so they and their supporters in Congress would belittle the frc's accomplishments even as they had they had subsequently argued that it should exist and then as it was going along they would say oh this is terrible you're not doing a good job and and uh the frc was handicapped by a number of things it had limited financial resources had an inadequate staff uh And as we're talking about here, it really didn't have any power or authority, and its existence was in question from the very day that it was it was created.
0: Yeah, Uh, yeah. it was
2: like they were constantly on probation.
0: Yeah, it was one of those things where, um, they're also, their very organization ended up being a problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the things about the FRC was that they were organized so that the entire United States was divided into, into zones.
2: Yeah, they called this sectionalism.
0: And each zone was giving, given the same number of broadcast licenses essentially as every other zone. Right, yeah. Which, you know, from one perspective, sounds like it would be fair. Like everybody gets the same amount. But then you think, where's the population distribution? Right. The Northeast is very heavily populated and the Southwest is very lightly populated. And so you don't have enough broadcast licenses for the Northeast and you have too many for the Southwest. So these were so simple things, like just the way things were set up kind of set the frc up for failure
2: it did yeah especially because uh when that happened southerners in particular felt like they weren't being treated fairly Mm -hmm. uh and it led to the davis amendment in march 28th 1928 the idea was that there had to be an equal allocation of licenses band frequencies periods of time for operation station power for each of these five zones yeah uh and that so you know obviously sectionalism was a huge problem for the frc Uh, This is even before we get into the business interest angle, right?
0: Right, right. This is just in the operation part of the FRC, not even getting into the business section, but... These are definitely important things to to consider, the idea of being able to say, here's the frequency you are allowed to use. Here's the amount of power your transmitter is allowed to have. So that way we can make sure that we don't have these battling frequencies interfering with one another, because that's not going to be good for anybody. It's not good for the transmitter. It's not good for the consumer who's trying to receive these. Right. All of that made sense, but they were hampered so much. And also, I mean, there were a lot of shady political goings on along with corporate goings on at the same time.
2: Right. They were essentially trying to fulfill this mission of favoring big business over amateur radios. And they actually there's an actual FRC memo that says, quote, there is not room in the broadcast band for every school of thought, whether it's religious, political, social, social or economic. Each can't have its own separate broadcasting station or a mouthpiece in the ether. Uh, so they, you know, they were coming down pretty hard on these these amateur stations that were give, providing, you know, a, a pulpit essentially mm-hmm. to anybody who had the means to to operate uh, a broadcast, um, in favor of the businesses that were, you know, lobbying to have them created in the first place.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You know, very complicated issue. The technology, oddly enough, less complicated than the politics and culture surrounding it in this case. Right. Like The the, the stories end up getting um, like it's the human element that really throws the the monkey wrench in here.
2: Yeah. So, for instance, like uh, you've got this happens. The FRC says, you know, this isn't a this isn't a pulpit for your beliefs. And then the labor movement, which is very powerful at the yeah. time, says, well, wait a minute, we should have a clear channel that we can broadcast over these five mm-hmm. zones so we can talk to people about labor interests. And then educators said, yeah, so should we. Uh, and so there's all this pressure from the public. And then subsequently, Congress uses that and just keeps pushing on the FRC saying, you're really blowing it here.
0: Yeah. So- You've got a a great bullet list here of the working principles of the FRC. Let's go through those.
2: Yeah, so this is how they would ostensibly decide things. Uh, The first is that the station with the longest record of continuous service had the superior right for broadcasting on a particular channel, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they had a stipulation. There were other conditions as well. So in order to fulfill the fair and equitable distribution that was required by them, Mm -hmm. uh, an applicant who wanted to broadcast needed firm financial standing and efficient equipment. Mm -hmm. That's pretty vague. Yeah. Right. So it's up to this FRC, not FCC, FRC commissioner at the time to determine what uh, firm financial standing means and what efficient equipment means, especially Mm -hmm. as this equipment is evolving at a rapid pace. Right. 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 and then you also had to uh, obey the rules of the obscene, co- of not broadcasting obscene content like we mm-hmm. talked about earlier. Uh, and basically keeping it so that this dissemination of propaganda wasn't, uh, controlled by a single group and that creeds were supposed to find their, this is another quote that I love, find their way into the market of ideas to be on the air. There was this idea that, um, there was a, there would be a natural kind of uh, process throughout the radio operators and the public that would decide which political agendas should get to be broadcast on the radio or not, mm. rather than just giving everyone the opportunity to.
0: Yeah, and that would actually change, too. There would, there would eventually come a decision where people would say, you know what, we need to make sure that everyone has uh, equal opportunity to voice their, to, to put their political voice out there. But that would be an idea that would come around a little later. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, saying let's just put this out there and see what happens, and and I trust that whatever outcome there is, it will be for the best. Didn't always work out. It's like
2: it's like saying the laws of nature will decide who the best person for president of the United States would be.
0: So, what sort of stuff did we get as a result of this?
2: Well, subsequently. The FRC didn't want to regulate advertising, uh, not only because, you know, the, the advertisers interests were also their interests, but also because the commission chose to further the ends of the commercial broadcasters as part of what they called the public interest. So the FRC had this ability to claim that it didn't have powers of censorship and it couldn't be held responsible for questionable advertising, such as cigarettes, you know, those like. Sure. old corny cigarette ads that you'd hear on uh on radio. Right. Now, if you're remember. listen,
0: if you ever listen to old timey radio that has the commercial still in it, you will hear tons of these.
2: Yeah. So they they didn't want to censor those, but at the same time, they would rule that public stations that were on the air could or could not be on the air because of their quality of character, which right. I think is kind of fascinating. That you know. It was, I would assume at the time that it was maybe arguments of political beliefs, right? Um,
0: yeah, very likely. Or um, religious. This actually makes me think of how – it's unrelated, it's tangential – but how if I'm watching a streaming content uh, on my one of my devices – Yeah. Whenever it gets to the content part like whatever I'm actually trying to see I might encounter buffering 3 or 4 times depending upon the connection mm-hmm. but commercials always seem to play with perfect clarity and yeah. no buffering whatsoever isn't that
2: interesting yeah. especially especially uh, when you're when you're on YouTube and YouTube's got that new sort of passive aggressive Uh, alert that comes up at the bottom that says, hey, just so you know, this isn't us. It's the limits of your uh, bandwidth provider.
0: Right. (laughs) The commercial is
2: just fine. (laughs)
0: So it's interesting to me also that the public, you know, you would think like, oh, the public, were they crying out on behalf of the little guy? And it turns out they they weren't in large part. They were actually siding with the big networks.
2: Yeah, they were. And what's kind of interesting about this is yeah, they were more interested in the content that NBC, RCA, and CBS was, were putting out. Um, and even though some people argued, you know, RCA has a monopoly on this industry, uh, it, it's interesting. Like, there was another argument that was essentially that, look, the mass public just wants entertainment from these radio channels. They yeah. don't want to be educated. They don't want to listen to your political uh, screeds. And so subsequently they're complacent about the whole thing and they don't really care whether or not these amateur radio stations are getting edged out. Mm. Um, and so, there, again, like I turned back to this 1935 article by this guy Herring out of uh, the Harvard Review. And he proposed that there were two potential solutions, which I think are really interesting now that we have the, the advantage of being so far ahead in time and looking back on this. And he said the only possible solutions are th- that we go for full government ownership so, and his example was the BBC at the time. Yep. Uh, and he said, yeah, there's criticisms that come in the form of minorities, not, not ethnic minorities, but, like, minorities of, of voice, mm-hmm. claiming that they aren't given equal opportunity to access the station. So that's the one negative drawback to that. And he said, or we could allot a fixed percentage of radio facilities just for nonprofit programs, uh, and then whatever it is, whether it's uh, they allocate a certain number of frequencies Or maybe they say, you know, the commercial stations can broadcast for these 12 hours a day and then another 12 hours a day, it's our nonprofit stations. Um, but even if they did that, there was so much demand for nonprofit amateur radio that they didn't have enough, enough to accommodate everybody. There wasn't enough enough bandwidth. bandwidth. Literally,
0: literally in this case, there wasn't, there weren't enough frequencies to facilitate it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So this is really, between 1920 and 1934 where we see the beginning of the radio industry an actual radio industry mm-hmm. that is commercialized and there are questions that were going around about well how should broadcasting be financed how should we produce our programs how should we distribute all of this stuff and amateur broadcasting moved away as much as it was like kind of i, I think of it as being like the fandom of today you know mm-hmm. like is the t- I keep thinking it's amateur radio is like the Tumblr <laughs> <laughs> of the 20s, um, and that there were so many fandoms expressed there. But uh, ultimately, other stations that had commercial enterprises behind them, or even commercial enterprises themselves, like department stores or music stores mm-hmm. or, or doctors or... Mr. Brinkley, yeah, sorry, Doctor Brinkley. Yes, Uh, (laughs) he didn't
0: spend three years not graduating medical school to be called Mister.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I mean that five hundred dollars was well spent. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, they ultimately were able to, you know, push out these interests of uh, the sort of amateur broadcasters. Right. So, like RCA, GE, and Westinghouse, they form NBC. Because they want to keep their interests from diverging. Even right. though they're competitors, they're also, you know, united against amateur radio. Mm-hmm. This leads to the rise of advertising sponsorships, which we're well familiar with in the podcasting world and with ad agents. This is really like the first time that they uh, had like whole ad agencies that were working together with these companies, kind of uh, coming up with how this stuff was going to be broadcast and how was the best way to convince the audience, uh, to, to, to move from Queens. Or to buy a cigarette.
0: So, looking back to our friend that we referred to a second ago, Doctor John R. Brinkley. Yeah. Uh, the FRC denied his broadcast renewal license in 1930. So Doctor Brinkley comes up to the FRC says, "Uh, time for me to get a little stamp on here so I can continue my my good deeds of uh, posting or, or broadcasting fraudulent <laughs> medical practices and getting kickbacks." And they said, "Nope." They actually cited the fraudulent claims and the content as the reason, saying it was against their content rules, and that's why they were not renewing his license. So, Brinkley, so this is
2: actually an instance where they did that, yeah, and it was for the good, yeah. for the greater uh, yeah. good.
0: Great, for the greater good in this case, although Brinkley, Brinkley said that what was happening was uh, effectively censorship.
2: Um obviously.
0: And so he protests and what he does he buys a radio station in Mexico that broadcasts at a much higher power than almost any station in the US. It was at a hundred thousand watts, uh eventually went up to a half million watts. And so very powerful radio station compared to the other ones that were active at the time. He directs the antenna northward into the <laughs> United States. This guy is amazing. So here's here's the deal. This is this is what's going to come back and haunt him. The way this worked was that he would uh he would actually his studio was in the United States. Yeah. The the stuff he was broadcasting would go to Mexico to be transmitted by radio, and that's what would eventually come back to get him, but that would
2: be another couple of years. He's I'm fascinated by this guy. He's just he's uh the brass. The
3: chutzpah. <laughs> yeah.
2: The moxie. Yeah. Um, Well, as a side note, uh, one of the things that was mentioned at the top from that listener uh, message was FDR's fireside chats. Yep. And those began in 1933. So this is really when, I mean, fireside chats don't happen anymore, but I'm fairly certain that the president of the United States still records a weekly message that goes out on radio. Mm. Uh, and it becomes an institution. Yeah. The, the presidency recognizes the importance of this media.
0: Now, the communicating to the mass public. Uh, also in 1933, that's when Edwin Howard uh, Edwin Howard Armstrong, remember we talked about him earlier, created frequency modulation radio or FM radio. So AM, remember we mentioned, changes the peak-to-peak voltage, changes the amplitude of that wavelength. Yeah. Frequency modulation doesn't change the amplitude. It changes the number of oscillations per second, the actual frequency of the wave within a fairly narrow band, because obviously you have to tune to a band of, of frequencies in order to pick things up. And if it went outside of that, you wouldn't get it anymore.
2: Which is why uh, you can overlap stations instead of causing interference like right. you would on am
0: yeah as long as uh, you know so you know if you're if you're going in an area where the power levels are almost the same for the frequencies that's when you start getting that weird thing where you'll hear one station and then the other station yeah. maybe you'll hear both at the same time but it's pretty rare uh, so it's also not as prone to static you don't have the same problems that you did with am with electromagnetic interference uh, but before it could get widespread adoption, Armstrong was essentially backstabbed by his former friend, David Sarnoff, who was head of, guess what, RCA. Boom. And now RCA obviously had a big vested interest in AM radio. FM was rising as a competing technology. Sarnoff went nuclear. He he had wanted Armstrong to go and create technology to make AM radio broadcast more clear, more mm-hmm. free of static. And instead, Armstrong comes up with this alternative to AM radio, but RCA is heavily invested in AM. Yeah. So rather than say, let's adopt this new technology and build on it, he went nuclear. And he started lobbying the FCC to deny an experimental license for uh, to uh, testing FM radio. Essentially, every time Armstrong tried to make a move to push FM radio forward, uh, RCA blocked it or tried to block it or complicate it. Mm. Litigation ensued; it got very expensive. And here's where things get really tragic. Uh, in the in, in, by the time you get to the 1940s. Armstrong was effectively bankrupted by the litigation he, yeah. he, he was still trying to pursue one this guy
2: trying to fight against RCA
0: he goes to his wife to ask her for some of the money he had given her in their earlier part of their relationship that she had put aside for their retirement okay she denies him this he he has been beaten down totally and he he gets enraged and does a horrible act he grabs a fire poker. Hits his wife in the arm, uh, injuring her arm. She leaves, obviously. She leaves sure. him. That evening, he sits down, writes an apologetic letter, and jumps out the window of his 13th floor building Ugh. and kills himself. Okay. Yeah. Tragic, tragic story. So there are some amazing and powerful stories here. Mm-hmm. Brinkley Armstrong, Tesla, Marconi Yeah. is – I mean – There's a movie, there are many movies to be made from this. Moving on, the 1934 Communications Act, huge, huge piece of legislation. This is the formation of the FCC. Um, The one section of that act is actually referred to as the Brinkley Act. This is within (laughs) the overall 1934 Communications Act. And of course, the Brinkley Act is in fact named after our good buddy, Dr. John R. Brinkley. So this was the U.S. government's attempt to finally shut down Brinkley and his attempts to continue broadcasting. And they said that if you are transmitting information from the United States to another country to be broadcast, that is a type of international commerce and thus can be regulated. Sure. And they laid down rules and they said, you cannot do this. It is against the law now. We have put that into law. It put a stop to his transmitting. And he ended up uh, trying to do other things. He also, by the way, really got the government's attention, not just by transmitting messages about quackery and terrible m- medicinal cures for things. He sided with the Nazis.
2: Right. Before the before the United States entered the war. Exactly. This is yeah.
0: before the United States was in uh, in World War Two. But he sided with yeah. the Nazis. Did not go over well. Uh, he eventually would die of a heart attack in
2: 1942. Wow! Yeah. And end scene. End Dr. scene Brinkley. with Doctor Brinkley, but, but seriously, but, but Brinkley. I mean, his his
0: actions are what. In fact, there was not a, there was a case back in the 1990s that related to shutting down a. Uh, a an organization that was using a similar means of transmitting from the United States to right. a radio uh, antenna in Mexico, mm-hmm. because they had the facility that they could use, and it was largely unregulated. Even as late as the 1990s, we've had cases that fall under this part of the act. For
2: some reason, I'm thinking about DDoS attacks. But it's like, <laughs> it's like the, the their version of yeah. Uh, it's the,
0: all about stepping around yeah, the regulations, yeah, exactly. right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, Congress, like you said, had abolished the FRC, which they were hoping to do to begin with. Yep. But instead of just turning it back over to the Department of Commerce, they established the FCC. The mandate of the FCC is interstate and foreign commerce and communication, which yep. is where the Brinkley thing comes in. And this is these are the three claims that they uh, maintain or the, the reason for the FCC. Make sure that radio is available to all for reasonable charges. And with adequate facilities so that Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily listening to – no longer would you be listening to an amateur out of their garage, out of their gas station. Who would walk away for five minutes to go pump some gas and then come back. You want reliable radio service, America, and we're going to give it to you.
0: And so this is also when we start seeing the allocation of large frequency bands for – uh, AM radio and FM radio. There still is amateur radio. You can get a license to operate an amateur radio, but there are very specific band of frequencies you yeah. are allowed to use, and you can't use anything outside of
2: that. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of what Herring was arguing back in the nineteen thirties that that there, but it's far more limited than that. I think what he was envisioning was that there there would be a spectrum for. Nonprofit radio right um and and he also argued that the fcc at the time had to decide whether they were going to support commercial broadcasters at the expense of nonprofit ones and ultimately as we know they decided to do that um and even though there were hearings going on and reports were being pulled together and the fcc was looking at all these things you know ultimately what we know of as the golden age of radio saw the growth of these these uh uh, multi-corporate networks across the country.
0: Right. And by this time, we're talking about World War II. Uh, Radio now was adopted by a huge percentage of the population. Uh, Nine in 10 families owned a radio and listened to an average of three to four hours of programming a day.
2: Right. This is like what we picture of that, like... That, Family that, gathered that great around time. Yeah. The fireplace yeah. is going in there all gathered around the radio. Yeah, it's a
0: little orphan Annie and, <laughs> and Lone Ranger and Green Hornet and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is this is where we're going to kind of draw an end to this, because while we're right here at the dawn of the Golden Age, I think that, you know, what's the cool story that we've been able to tell is the rocky journey it took to mm-hmm. get there hope you guys enjoyed that episode about the golden age of radio if you have any suggestions for future episodes reach out to me on tech stuff or twitter the handle for both of those is tech stuff hsw and i'll talk to you again really soon tech stuff is an iheart radio production for more podcasts from iheart radio visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows
3: Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.